I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Jeffrey Fleischman. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and longtime foreign correspondent. He's had postings in Rome, Berlin, and Cairo, and has covered wars in Iraq, Libya, and Kosovo. He returned to the U.S. in 2014 and is foreign editor of the Los Angeles Times. He's written four other novels, My Detective and Last Dance, which were the first two Sam Carver books, Shadow Man, and Promised Virgins, a novel of jihad. His latest is Goodnight Forever, and it's third in the series um, of the Sam Carver books. And before we go on, I just want to tell you, if you don't already know, that we now have a Patreon page. And um, you can find us on Patreon by looking for Writers on Writing. And uh, any support you'd like to give, we are happy to accept. And uh, we'll appreciate that. So, Jeff, I'm so glad to talk to you again. We, we met on Sunday at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books on the crime fiction panel, um, which was so wonderful. And there was so much more I wanted to talk to you about um, after that panel. So thank you for, uh, for coming, coming on. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to meet you. So thank you, too. Yeah. Well, let's start by... Um, you talking about Goodnight Forever and how that novel came about and, and maybe say a few words about the books that preceded it. Yes, um, Goodnight Forever is, as you mentioned, the third in the, in the, in the trilogy, uh, what I call the Los Angeles trilogy involving uh, Detective Sam Carver. Uh, Carver made his first appearance in My Detective and that was basically, uh, that was a book about um, his hunt uh, for a killer whose name was Dylan Cross, and uh, she's become his nemesis uh, throughout the three books. And uh, in, in my detective, um, it was told in the first person of, of the cop, uh, Detective uh, Sam Carver, and the killer Dylan Cross, and they alternated chapters so you could get into each of their interior lives as well as as well as the plot points. Um, in the second novel, the follow-up to that, Last Dance. Um, Carver is solving crimes in, in Hollywood and also involving Russian spies and a little bit of intrigue uh, that was happening in both LA and around the country. Um, in that book, uh, Dylan Cross haunts, haunts it more than she is a presence, but she's always in Carver's head. Um, and the follow-up, the third book, is uh, Goodnight Forever, is when Carver and uh, Dylan Cross finally have that, uh, that final that final showdown, so to speak. So the book is a buildup to that, to that moment, but it also takes place. It also, um, the subplot is Carver just, uh, trying to solve a, a number of homeless murders uh, in the Los Angeles area. Mm. So the first chapter of Goodnight Forever sets up the characters, it sets up the conflict. It has a very poignant tone. Um, for me, it was a study in what a first chapter needs to do. And I'm always curious about first pages and first chapters and how, how much work the writer puts into that first chapter and first page. 
So can you can you talk about sort of nailing down the voice and and really doing everything a first chapter needs to do? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, obviously, it's the, from the first line uh, through the end of the first chapter. That's that's where the reader will be invested or not. And uh, and it has to be, you know, I think I work on the first chapter and the ending uh, equally as, as hard and, and through as many revisions and rewrites just to make it right. I had a little bit of an advantage in, in this and in that, in that I knew Carver, you know, to from the two previous books and I knew where the story was going and I knew his voice. I wanted to, and Carver's, Carver's a bit of a loner. He's a bit of, uh, he's a bit of an interior, definitely interior. Uh, he feels deeply, he's, he carries his own scars from his past, but he's also very attuned to the world. Um, and I wanted this particular book, since I knew how it was going to end, to bring out that. I'm glad you mentioned poignancy because I was I was hoping to convey that 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 this guy might be bruised and there's a lot going on and his exterior can sometimes be tough, but there's but below that uh, there is this feeling of of compassion uh, for the people around him, especially for the for the victims of the crimes he's trying to solve. Mm. Well, you know something else that really drew me into the novel was that. It, it, um, I'm not sure quite how to say this. It, it, it seemed literary in so many ways. Um, I think, I mean, the setting was just beautifully detailed and the language, um, really had, you know, it really seemed that you paid a lot of attention to the language. And I don't know if what you had in mind when you were maybe starting the series or, you know, we're, we're specifically talking about Goodnight Forever, but, you know, I know you come from a journalist background and you're still, you still do journalism and um, I, I don't know, I'm throwing a lot of things into, I'm not even sure what the question is, but um, it, in, in certain ways, it wasn't a, I don't know, a, a, a typical um, mystery series, um, you know, Book three, it, it had so much going on as well as themes. And I don't know, there's language, there's themes, there's craft. Um, are you are you writing, maybe I should ask, are you writing to genre? Are you writing whatever you need to write, whatever book you need to write and, and however it comes out, it comes out? Yeah, I think the latter. I mean, uh, you, you raise a really good point because in the in the crime history sort of noir genre, we tend to think of, of books being written in a certain way with uh, with plot points and developments and and, and things. Uh, and I, I I do that in the books, but for, for me, from my point of view, I, I want to write a I want to write a book where language is essential, where language conveys a sense of meaning not only to my characters but a sense of place. I I really want to have the reader step into an evocative landscape, both with inside my characters and with inside the, uh, the, the milieu that they're, that they're navigating in this, in this case, Los Angeles. So I want, I want the reader to see uh, through, through my words, I'm hoping the reader sees, uh, you know, this vista that I'm trying to, to do. Uh, and, and, and then I think, I, so I, when I began writing this series, I knew that one of the things I was, going to be looking at and because this was my first venture into um, into the crime noir mystery genre that that a lot of a lot of readers demand um, maybe less 
less of what I do um, and more of like speeding things along. I think there's plenty of plot in my books and there's plenty of and there's plenty of pace, but I do like to 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 as I said to, to bring the readers more into a world and create that world more fully. Yeah, and I I wonder, you know, I mean, I think in in genre fiction there has to be attention to plot, but don't you think that characters in all genres are the thing that keeps the reader? I mean, it, it's what keeps me or not, um, as opposed to plot. There can be plot holes in a novel. And if I am with the, the characters and if I'm kind of sunk into the book, it doesn't really matter so much. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, that's what I tried to develop at the, in the first book. Sam Carver and Dylan Cross, I, I wanted to draw them out as such distinct characters where the reader, um, where the reader right at the beginning felt, okay, I, I'm, I'm invested in this guy and this woman and I, I wanna see where this thing goes. So, so I agree, plot points are important, but, but to me, first is character. Yeah, and your endings, so many of your um, chapter endings were so finely crafted and you, you talked about the ending, you know, the beginning and the end of the book, but what about the chapters, structuring the chapters, because you really seem to pay attention to how you are ending a chapter. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's really interesting because I think, you know, you mentioned my still being in journalism and, and years and years ago when I started out in journalism, I had a very wise editor who told me, you know, um, so many reporters think about the lead and they craft a lead and it drives them nuts and they keep working on the lead because that's the window into the story, obviously, the entry point. But too many journalists forget that the last thing the reader sees or feels or hears is the ending. And so don't, don't um, just because this is journalism, sort of a top-down uh, pyramid in storytelling, don't, don't forget your ending. And I think I've kept that with me through, through those many years. And I think I approach each chapter that way um, trying to start the chapter evocatively, but always leaving something at the end where the reader feels the propulsion to want to go on. Yeah, yeah, and you know, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Your chapter endings did make me want to turn the page. Um, something else that was interesting because I'm, you know, we've, we're coming out of a pandemic, at least I hope we're coming out of a pandemic and it, you know, I'm, I've been curious how writers were going to deal with COVID during, you know, in writing books after. And in Goodnight Forever, COVID is coming. And maybe talk about, you know, um, injecting that into this novel. Yes. Uh, well, when I, I had two tracks on that when I was, while COVID was coming, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the foreign national editor of the LA Times, and I was dealing with in real time uh, COVID, and then we had the uh, then we had the uh, George Floyd murder and and the national uh, upheaval and protest over that. So I was really um, navigating that, and then I, I when I was turned my attention to the book, I, I wanted COVID. I didn't know how. I didn't want. We were already living in COVID at that point when I was when I was finishing this up, and I didn't want to concentrate too much on the COVID aspect of it. And I wanted, given the time frame of this book and how it followed the other two, I wanted to give an echo, an echo that uh, that COVID was coming in, in very, just 
a, a bit of foreshadowing because I thought the reader at that point, as soon as he or she reads those few lines that I mentioned about COVID, there is this foreboding or this foreshadowing of what's to come. And then I think the reader intuitively says, oh, yes, we're living through this. I, I don't need any more. That was, that was my thought anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was dealt with quite nicely, though. Um, yeah, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what's coming down the pike, right, in terms of, in terms of COVID and fiction. Um, I try, and I try to do the same with 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 climate change. Not knocking anybody over the head, and the climate change words are not even mentioned in the book. But uh, you know, it's raining all the time in LA, which is very unusual. But I, I wanted to make the weather sort of uh, a, a, a lurking character in this, um, not to hit the reader over the head with it, but just to say, ah, there's something changed in the environment of sunny Los Angeles. Why is it raining all the time? And I, I wanted to do that subtly too. And you also have almonds. You have all the water that um, is used to grow almonds. Right. So that was, it's like, hmm, I don't think I've ever read anything in fiction where the writer is dealing with all the water we put into almonds. It makes me actually not want to eat almonds and I hardly <laughs> do anymore, but, um, you know, that was interesting too. And there's other themes there you know, the homeless in LA, I don't think I have ever quite seen homelessness in LA in fiction as I did in this book. Um, maybe talk about that a bit, dealing with, because I think one thing crime fiction does, does that perhaps readers who don't think they like crime fiction um, think that you know, the, crime fiction deals with so many issues, so many social issues and concerns. And um, in this one, as well as as well as almonds and climate change and and uh, grief, there is the homeless situation. Yeah, uh, homeless. I, I live uh, I live in downtown Los Angeles, <clears throat> about uh, three blocks from Skid Row. And so it's a it's a prevalent part of my daily existence to, to see the the homeless equation and 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 how people are are suffering both by their both by their own demons and by societal or family letdowns. Uh, so it, it, traveling around or just walking around downtown LA uh, really really brought to life how how vast and how how desperate this problem is for not only those living on the street, but for we as a society and, and how we're going to deal with it. And because homelessness is such a part of the Los Angeles conversation, uh, you, you know, I think there's 50,000 homeless people in, in Los Angeles itself. Um, I, I felt that that needed to be a part of this this last book. The first, my detective dealt with the changing architecture of Los Angeles. That was sort of the, the LA theme in that. And, uh, and Last Dance dealt with with Hollywood, the Hollywood influence on Los Angeles. And this one, uh, it was homelessness. And the other thing I wanted to to bring in in that, uh, with the introduction of Detective Alicia Bryant was the race question that LA and the country faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, in terms of homelessness, you have a side character, Esmeralda. And, you know, I, I was talking about this, what you did with um, the homeless theme in Esmeralda, because, you know, when I, in fiction, uh, especially student fiction, a lot of the time I see kind of this, 
I don't know, sentimental view of dealing with homeless, right? Sort of in general. And I was talking about um, this character in your book in terms of making homelessness specific. So you have a character that uh, Sam Carver is dealing with directly instead of, instead of sort of this overarching generic theme. Um, maybe you could talk about that, bringing Esmeralda into the mix and, and why you did that and all that. Yeah, Esmeralda actually is based on, uh, on a woman who for, for a couple of years, every time I looked out my window, I'm, I live on the fourth floor and I looked down across to the Clark Hotel, the abandoned Clark Hotel, she was sitting there um, every night and she would, she would arrive and begin arriving about uh, eight o'clock in the evening with all her belongings and that she would leave, she'd have to leave some of them at one point, point in the sidewalk and then collect them and then bring them one by one to where she'd sort of sleep every night. And so I studied her out my window and I walked by her. She was, I, I tried to actually to talk to her a couple of times, but, um, but it, it just didn't work out. But she was so vivid in her, in, in just her presence on my street. Uh, and, and it also went to, I thought, wow, the, Carver is facing a lot of his own uh, demons and damage and, and wreckage and trying to reconcile a lot of things in his life. And I thought, rather than, rather than team him up with somebody who's his, his, uh, his contemporary or somebody who shares a lot of his same societal views or where he comes from, maybe I'll put him in this world because emotionally and, and psychologically, sometimes he feels in this world. And, and so I didn't, and I think you raise a great point on sentimentality because one of the things I tried to do in, in each of these novels and dealing with any of my topics, especially homelessness, is not to get sentimental. I think, I think covering homelessness, covering issues so profound to our societal experience, e even a war, when you cover a war, you don't need a lot of adjectives or sentimentality. You just have to show up and, and record what you see in process because war carries its own drama. Homelessness carries its own drama. And to hit the points too strongly on that cheapens it. And so I tried to make Esmeralda as real a character as I could. Yeah, it, it does seem that the more restraint you apply to emotionally charged situations, the better it it comes off, right? I mean, restraint is um, not not used often enough. Yeah, I think I think restraint is the great. I, and, and and I like to riff too. I mean, I do like to do that. I think I think, but I think there are moments that you that you feel. I feel as a writer, there are certain moments, and I can see it coming at the beginning of the paragraph, and I can see how that paragraph is going to end. And sometimes, sometimes you can, you can go all out, but sometimes more frequently I see like, okay, I've opened this lens and now I have to compress. And then the compression, I have to be exact. And in the exactness and in the detail, I hope I convey the power of emotion I want without overdoing it. And so that's, that's what I try to do anyway. Is that something you got from journalism? I think partly, yes, and I think partly it's 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 uh, um, it, it's it, as I've learned in writing fiction over over time, it is the there is something to be said of the stripping down, um, and sometimes I strip down and 
and uh, the language. And then sometimes I realize it's too sparse and I, I want to go up a tick. Um, but for the most part, I try to pull out and weed out as much of it as I can and still be still be vivid. But there are ways to be vivid that you can do it with uh, with sparseness or even even a character's dialogue or a number of other things that you can use to create the full picture. But you're doing it with um, with sparse uh, lean sentences. And then sometimes there'll be a sentence that just drops in that that feels like, OK, this is a little bit of a flourish, but it seems to work. And then usually on the, the final edit, you'll catch those if, if they don't work. Because um, yeah. your mind will have time to say, "Okay, I've slept on this, and I've decided that this sentence <laughs> doesn't work." Um, so. mm. Do you have the book there? Are you able to uh, read from the, the first couple of pages? Uh, yeah, hang on, let me uh, see. Let's get. Let me just get up and get it. Uh, yeah, sure. And just to remind our listeners, if you uh, you need to know, this is Jeffrey Fleischman and his book that we're talking about is Good Night Forever. Okay. Okay, I have it up. Um, what would you like? Yeah, maybe just the first couple of pages. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Rain falls. I roll down the window, feel the cool on my face. It makes Los Angeles another world, slick, clean, racing silver clouds. I cross the bridge into Boyle Heights. A kid on a bike flies off a curb over a puddle. Children splash and twirl past a mural of Our Lady of Guadalupe. The light over the taqueria flashes like an erratic whisper. And on the corner, two men step out from a bar and lean against a wall beneath the eaves, hands cupped, smoking a joint. The sweet sting of it mixes with the rain. The radio is midway through a trumpet tune. I don't know who's playing. The notes spin, hushed and slow, a reverie against a sway of pepper trees and dripping awnings. I have a bottle of wine and a bag of tape takeout. Simple things at the end of a long week. I turn. The cross at St. Mary's rises over Lily's house. Blurs and blue lights, streams of yellow tape. Something's not right. I know the scene. I've been to this moment many times. But why here? Why at Lily's? I stop the car. Rain rattles the roof, drenches the windshield. I get out and run to the house. The cop faces know me. Their eyes dart away. I see Ortiz on the porch. He steps toward me, wraps his arms around me. He speaks, but his words fall silent. He holds me hard, then eases. I break from his grasp. Two uniforms block the open door. I see the light behind them and the stairs that lead to Lily. I try to push through. They look at me, glance at Ortiz. He nods. The uniforms part. I run, but there is no reason to run. Not anymore. What's at the top of the stairs is, an, is the end of an act. Time frozen. I know this, but it tricks me. All is the same. The couch by the window, the painting I gave her from an artist in Lincoln Park. Lily's barbells and weights in rows and stacks. The stereo with the scratched Shabala Vargas record she has been playing for weeks. I love vinyl, she told me, the cracks between words. It's not the same, though. Men in white suits rummage and bag. They take pictures. They look at me and look away. They know. I am not on the clock. This is not my case. This is Lily Hernandez, my lover and almost partner, the woman I called two hours ago to ask if it would be Vietnamese noodles of Korean barbecue. I follow the voices to the bedroom. 
She lies by the glass doors that open to the back porch. Bare feet come on a robe, blood at the heart. Eyes closed as if in prayer. Short black hair wet from the rain spattering off the porch. I step closer. I know, I know not to touch. I kneel beside her like a failed knight. I study the wound, a single shot, close range. Mm. <clears throat> Thank you so much. It, it's great listening to you read um, from, from your book. You know, it's, we have words in our head as we're reading, but it's, it's always nice to hear the writer um, read, read his own work. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I um, but when I'm done, I, I, I do spend a lot of time not reading out loud, but reading so I can hear it sort of in an understated voice. So I can, so again, I think it helps you when you go back to, to fix the rhythm of the sentences. So you do not read aloud? I, I read aloud, but I, not, not uh, you know, I read so at, at a low, at a low audible, right. but I, I do read aloud so I can, I can hear it because often the ear, you know, as we know as writers is, is so uh, attuned at catching the falsity that, <laughs> that hopefully it, it weeds it out or, or, or lets you know that, that the rhythm is just slightly off cadence or just not, not working right. And I think hearing it spoken, you can, you can fix it on the page. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, <clears throat> when you're reading aloud, <clears throat> my voice is going when you're reading aloud you don't want to read as an actor right uh performing but but so that yeah as you said so that you can actually hear the rhythm and hear what's going on with the language and the words um and if you're you have too many beats in there or not enough right <clears throat> and i i think sunday you said something about um you know we were talking about creating detective characters and you said something to the effect of that you're not interested in getting into police procedure. Um, could you talk, I think that's the other thing I really enjoyed about, about this book is that it, there was very little of what goes on, you know, there was, you know, there wasn't like long detail about how a crime scene is, is worked. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and uh, I do. I I, I have, um, as you saw in that thing, I have mentioning the guys in the in the white suits and sort of collecting. But that that's as that's as far as I go. I mean, I do get into a little bit of that, but but I'm not I'm not a proceduralist by by any means. It's not the part of the story. And I love I love you know people who do it, and and I and I think there's a great talent in in that in deciphering and, and distilling the uh, the procedural. But for me, it's more of a I want to be more on a psychological, emotional terrain, uh, and I don't. I feel sometimes if I bring, would bring too much because of my style and because of what I'm trying to accomplish. If I bring too much procedural stuff into it, it will it will take it will slightly shift the story away from 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 the narrative I'm trying to develop. So I think if you, I think you, it it, it is a careful balance though, because uh, in this genre, people. Uh, you know, readers tend to tend to like that, but I, I I tend to think that, as we mentioned earlier, I think you can write. You, the writer has to create his own her own genre and where the story falls. So long as you're true to the story, I think I think the reader is going to to be true to you and, and hang in there. Hmm. What about backstory? Because Sam has um, a bit of backstory with his father and his mother that have very much. Um, um, created who he is, or at least, um, 
you know, have made him become who he is. Can you talk about that? Like how much backstory is enough? How much is too much? Because you seem yeah. to have reached a really nice balance with that. And then how soon um, should you bring in backstory? Yeah, I think I, uh, in, um, in my detective, that's a good question because it's, I think it's a, par a paramount question. Um, I, I bring in, uh, in my detective, uh, I, I, I bring in uh, Sam backstory fairly early, but not, not, not in great detail. I let the detail of it or the expansion of it um, bloom through the, the three novels. But essentially, Sam is, is the son of, uh, of, a, of a boxer. Uh, a very, a very mean and talented boxer, but um, who was murdered uh, when Sam was around ten years old. His mother was a teacher who was a writer. So there's this, there's poetry in her language. There's this poetry in her he finds, but there's also this, uh, this, uh, this, this kind of masculinity in a, and not in a perverted sense, but in a, Sam, in a sense that Sam understands his masculine, but not the kind of masculinity he wants. And, but he, he wants to know his father. He wants to understand this man who the last time he saw him was on a slab in a, in a morgue when he was a boy. So he carries that with him. Um, but his mother brought out the artistic and intellectual side of him. So Sam early on sits down and plays the piano. Um, he attended Berkeley. He, he thinks about the world. He doesn't, he's insular, um, uh, but he also thinks about the world and what's happening around him in society and, and things. And he tries to, it tr tries to relate to that. Not making so much judgments as, as trying to understand it. And, um, and with his nemesis, Dylan Cross, it was, she came from, she had a bipolar mother and, uh, and a very loving and caring father. And she, uh, I wanted to make her larger than life in many ways. So she's a very tall woman, about six feet tall, very imposing. And so that carries the criminal nature of her. But she, like Sam too, is very broken inside from a number of things that, that have happened to her. Uh, so I tried to, so her backstory comes out too in, in each of the novels. Yeah, I want to talk about Dylan for a minute because um, yeah, you alternate chapters on Dylan is very much a character in this book and very developed. And I think we briefly touched on it on Sunday, but I wonder if you could talk about how Dylan came to be a character in these novels. Dylan, um, when I was, uh, when I was um, thinking about my detective, the first one, um, I, was, I was really uh, fascinated by the changing downtown skyline of Los Angeles. And it was a, another attempt by the city to sort of figure out what downtown was going to look like, what it was going to feel like, at the same time balancing what was happening on Skid Row and, and all the other problems in the city. But the archi new architecture was going up. So I thought, I want the killer to be an architect, um, a very passionate, talented architect. But, uh, but because there's so much uh, misogyny and things in a lot of professions, especially architecture. I wanted her to carry some kind of vengeance that would motivate her killing. So that something very tragic happened to her and that's what sets her in motion as a killer. At the same time, she's dealing with deeper psychological problems left over from her, her mother and her family. So she's, she's tormented often and she can't get beyond that. And this incident that creates a vengeance sort of sets her off 
and uh, and but I wanted to make her also a character, although although she is a brutal killer, but a character one could empathize with. That I've tried to make her as as full drawn as I could to let her also absorb the world and feel the world beyond her own demons, and um, and she became much larger in life than than I had anticipated as I got to write her. Mm. You know, I, I'm hearing sirens and I'm thinking about you in downtown LA and I'd love to hear what what you love about living in downtown LA. Well, it's not the sirens and I'm sorry because you can hear a lot. No, it's of all right. It's all right. <laughs> you know, uh, um, well, my, my wife and I are city people. Uh, we lived in uh, before we, we lived in, in Cairo, Rome, Berlin, and a bunch of other places. And we came back to LA in 2014. And I hadn't lived in, I hadn't been, even though I looked, had worked for Los Angeles Times for more than a decade. I was always based overseas, so I never lived in LA. So we said, well, let's let's move downtown since we like cities, and and we did. And I was quite struck by it. Really felt like even though I was coming home to America, I was landing in a foreign city because it had, at that time, back in 2014, this revival of downtown hadn't quite happened. And it was really stark. And I felt, wow, this is the city they talk about with Skid Row. They weren't kidding about this. And so I was fascinated by that sociological experiment of living downtown and, and all the cultures that just are infused here. And then on top of that, uh, up on Grand Avenue, which is the hill hill in los angeles downtown los angeles you had frank geary putting up you know put up disney hall and you had you had uh, eli broad put building his museum and you had the colburn sense of music so you had on the top you had this sort of very classy veneer and this artistic cultural center that la wanted to be and then you go down the hill and then you slip towards skid row and you see reality and, and juxtaposed between those is where you have to find your life and uh, and so it's still it's still quite fascinating to be down here and see how this experiment is working. Mm. So you know your setting. We talked about this Sunday. Your setting is so evocative of downtown LA and Los Angeles in general. And um, uh, so is it is it easier for you to write about setting when you're in the midst of it? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I, I think I could now because. LA is so, in so many ways, has burned itself into me that I think I could be away from the city and and write, but it's certainly tremendous to to be here. And as I think I said Sunday, the thing I like about LA as a writer, it, 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 the frustrating thing, but also what I what I love about it is that it's elusive. It, it, it you can't really define Los Angeles. It doesn't want it to be defined. It defies you to do that. So I think writers who come in here wanting to write about LA. From you know, from Joan Didion to uh, to Chandler to so, have to find their own vision and version of it, and try to make that as universal as they can, so people can latch onto something. Because if you don't do that and you aren't distinct about it, and I try to I try to write in LA as much detail as I can, you can tip over into cliche. You know, the land of paradise, the broken dreams, and and all this, which it is very much so. But there has to be a way to tell that originally, and I think being in the city and being able to describe the physical features of it against its more psychological and emotional elements really helps helps in that. Mm. Yeah, I, I I didn't I didn't find the setting cliched a bit. And I just 
loved so many of the um, details. And there was one line I wrote down, the sky is morning tin with blades of sun. And I thought, you know, what a perfect line, you know, what a perfect detail of, of uh, you know, the morning and um, the morning in LA. And so I, I was thinking about you writing um, setting and how, you know, if you're like looking at the sun or looking at the sky and, and you know, thinking, well, what is that like? What is that like in, in a way that I've never heard before? I mean, do you do that or is it just kind of natural and coming out of you without you having to think about it? Um, I, I think I think a lot of it a lot of it hits me, and then uh, then a phrase like that might come out, and and I don't have to tinker with it. But but the image of it, um, but the image of it hits me like that at first, and then and then I play with. There's a scene in um, in uh, in Last Dance uh, that I wrote as a set piece, and then decided I had overdone it, and it was it was again uh, it was. Uh, what what the, one of the backdrops to Last Dance is what the wildfires in California, like climate changes to Goodnight Forever. And I'd written this piece that I thought very proud of after I'd written it. And it was basically describing a wildfire and how it moves through canyons and how it lurks outside the city and the colors against the sky and everything. And I decided, and I think it went on for three or four pages. And I, and it, it hit me in one, in one, in one whoosh. And, and I wrote it down and then I edited it. But I let it sit um, until almost the very end of the novel. And you know how when there's a noise, a voice in the back of your head telling you, you keep thinking about this and you think, but the other voice tells you, no, that's right, it right, it works. But then when I finally got down to the final edit, I said, no, it's too much. It, it's, it, I've gone overboard. So I condensed those four pages into two paragraphs and, um, and and I felt much better in doing that. So is that you telling yourself you went overboard or do you have readers that read your drafts and, and give you feedback or, or um, how do you know? In that, in that instance, it was me. Um, in other instances, it, it, it's been readers saying, I think this is a, 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 beat, a beat too far here. But in that one, it, it was it was me because I really wanted, you know, sometimes I think the worst thing for a writer is to be in love with his or her own words. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I was in love with those words because they seem to have come to me so clearly. They seem to have come just right out of the air into the laptop. And I thought, well, it can't be any truer than that. But I fooled myself by continuing to press and, and, and the little voice inside me. That I didn't want to listen to for a while was telling me that, and then and then finding one out, which was a good thing. I think. Mm. What about keeping track of the plot and the subplots and the twists and the turns? Um, you know, there's so many moving parts uh, to a novel. How are you keeping track of everything? Do you have an Excel spreadsheet? Do you have three by five cards that are all around? How, how do you keep track? Um, I don't. I don't have any of that. I'm probably a I'm probably a terrible planner when it comes to. I know some writers exact every every chapter out in, 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 in post-its or you know or, or Excel sheets, as you said. I I start with an idea and a character and a scene, and in that, and then I go forward 
about a third of the way into the novel for whatever is coming to my mind that I think fits this character in the scene at the beginning and the extrapolations out from there that may happen. And then I get to a point where I have to say, okay, I, I know where I'm going. I may not know completely what the, succinctly what the ending is, but I have a pretty good idea now. Now I have to write toward that with these people and some other people I'm going to bring in. Um, and then if you're keeping two plots going, like, uh, like both, all three of these books have basically two sort of crime plots going, you have to know when to shift out of one and into another. And I think, as you and I said earlier, if you have strong characters and the readers are attached to those characters and they somewhat overlap in these narratives, you'll have a touchstone for the reader to uh, to come back to like Dickens was so Charles Dickens was so fascinating at that he could he could um, start he could visually paint a character and drop that character for like 150 pages but then when that character returned they returned fully formed because of of how well the character was drawn to begin with but as as the book moved on you had the sense that that character was still going to return and so I try to do that so, and then in terms of your ending, how much do you know or not know when you're, as you're going on? I mean, at what point does the ending come into focus? Uh, different books, different. Uh, with My Detective, the first one, I think a lot of people were surprised at the ending. Um, it, didn't, it definitely didn't end traditionally like you would think of this genre. And I specifically wanted that because... And I didn't want to be, I wanted to write a noir, but I didn't want to be constrained by at least what I thought were the, were the structure of a noir. I wanted to, to tell it in my own way. And, and, and so that, that, um, that was, um, so that ending was, was uh, more traditional in the, in the, or less traditional in the, in, in last dance, I had to, Dylan wasn't in the book for so much of it. And, but I had to make that last chapter, to bring her back, even though she haunted the book, I had to, in the last chapter I had to bring her back in a in a powerful way to set up Goodnight Forever. And then the final chapter in Goodnight, the final chapters in Goodnight Forever, um, were, were I spent a lot a lot of time on that because I knew the here are my two main characters coming together for a sustained amount of time that's going to decide the fate for one of them. And I wanted it to be, if anything, you know, as I look back on this, and it's only, I think when we were talking on Sunday, I really reflected on it. And a little bit before that is when I finished Goodnight Forever. But it really is a, a strange and delusional love story. I mean, it has all these elements and all these plot lines and L.A. and everything we talked about. But it really is a, a, a story of a, a love story about two characters who, who can't have one another. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, as you're, as you're talking, I was thinking about how, um, because we were doing the panel and your most recent book is Goodnight Forever, that's the book I started with. And when I finished, I went back to the first one, um, to my detective, and which, you know, I, I didn't feel anything lacking by not starting with the first one, but it was interesting to see what you were setting up with the first one. And without giving the ending away of my of uh, Goodnight Forever, um, there's a church at, at the end of the book, toward the end of the book, 
um, if not at the end, um, out in the desert. And, you know, which I, I really liked that and how you dealt with it during that book. But then starting with the first book, starting with my detective, you set that up. You set the church up, which was so cool. Um, are, so I don't know. I don't know if you can say anything about writing a series and how much you're setting up with the first book that at some point there will be a payoff with. And, or if that's something that, again, was more subconscious, that it was just there. And then you're in the third book and you're, I got to do something with that church. Right. Yeah, I, I made that. Uh, that's a very good. Thank you for noticing that. That's, um, I, first of all, the, what, what, the church will also see, and I was told by somebody when I was, I was uh, that I was told by actually more than one person, but one person really laid it out for me saying, you know, really, there's a lot of Catholicism and God in your books, <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're religious that way. And I think maybe the church with Dylan is a subconscious extension of that, as you mentioned. But I think Dylan, Dylan, her architecture meant everything to her. When, when everything else, when she was in disarray, she was mentally failing, you know, going off the rails. The one thing she knew that kept her balanced was the precision of her architecture. Yeah. And her most proud architectural achievement was this little church that she designed out in the in the desert near Joshua Tree, and those lines in that light, and how she married the church to the elements of the desert, and how the light would hit it, um, so defined her as an architect that when I got to, and it even it even pops up a little bit in 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 the novel. She's not in so much uh, Last Dance, but I knew when I was writing Goodnight Forever that that church was going to to play a part. Mm. Yeah, I love the part that it played. <laughs> it was quite, quite memorable. That ending is, uh, well, the entire book is memorable, but you know, it's, you know, sometimes you read a novel and you, you love it when you're in it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, you can't even remember what it was about. And um, I, I so totally remember uh, Goodnight Forever so much about, about that book. And it's been a couple of weeks since I read it, which that's a great sign. <laughs> well Barbara, I'm going to call you in a couple of months and make sure it's still, it's still there. <laughs> I'm sorry, you, can, you can lie to me if, if not. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about about writers or novels that have been influential for you as a writer, um, uh, books that you remember or authors' work that you remember that has uh, uh, that that remains. Yeah, this, and this, some of this came up a little at Sunday's uh, Sunday's talk too. And I remember thinking, and I thought more about this when, when about when we were talking about writers and influence on Sunday. I think, I think um, for me, what what like Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald for me because of how I learned them and when I learned them, such and still remain uh, uh, two of my favorite novels. Um, but then I also like, uh, I mean, I really go for writing and character. So um, I really like um, uh, also Jeanette Winterston. I think she's got a wonderfully creative and clever voice. I mean, she doesn't write in the genre at all, but man, she tells great stories. And I like Michael Adjante and I like, um, and I love the poets of Shavo Miloš and, um, and 
Zimborska from Poland, and I spend and and um, I spend a lot of time uh, reading poetry because I just think the poet's eye at the succinct nature of language is what I want. I, I want to try to um, inject into some of my novels because I want. I think if you find the right poet and that poet speaks to you, um, and, and then you can understand how language has to be so precise and 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 when it is precise even in even if even if it's off kilter I mean, you don't want to be right on the mark you want to you want the reader to see something slightly outside what they anticipate that vision would be and i think poetry um poetry really really helps helps do that i also really love and i've discovered him recently um and he's a relatively young writer from uh ireland kevin barry uh, who's written just tremendous? I've I've gone through three of the three or four of his novels. Uh, I'm just there on my nightstand, and he's just terrific. What what a voice! Uh, Irish voice, but a universal voice. So I'm looking for for voice for um, uh, you know I just finished uh, Jonathan Franzen's novel um, uh, Crossroads, and I just thought. He, he did a fabulous job in a big book of telling the story of a family and, and just got into each of their lives. So you wanted to go back to it. You wanted to know, you were vested in what happened to these people. What's interesting about the, the, the authors you've mentioned is that they're all basically literary novelists. Yeah, I didn't, um, I think, um, I mean, of course I've read Chandler and and, uh, and and Michael Connolly and others, but I think the bulk of my the bulk of my writing, it, it, my 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 reading, or, or I guess what you'd call yeah literary literary novels. Um, I, I wrote this great novel of a famous Croatian writer. I'm calling her famous, but her name escapes me. But who did a story? Who did this wonderful literary novel about what it meant the ethnic cleansing in in uh, in uh, in the former uh, Yugoslavia and in the Balkans, and how she tells it through the eyes of a of a psychiatrist who's trying to deal with people, and it's just a fascinating fascinating book. Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting, but you know, and also that you read poetry, and it really shows in your writing. You know, you you know, I'm I uh, I should have guessed that you were a, a reader of poetry as I was reading your book because of the way you put sentences and images um, on the page. Um, yeah, and sometimes I listen to it, like I'll go into one of my favorite poets is Anna Akhmatova, the Soviet or the Russian poet from the Soviet era. And um, I'll go and just listen to, uh, listen to poetry being read. Uh, again, it goes back to reading, you know, reading even prose, but when you find, when you find the right texture of voice with the right word i think you can really it helps you elevate your writing because you want to be that good um we have a few minutes left and i wanted to ask you about noir because you've you know you've mentioned it a few times and i know it's been um um said that your novels are, are sort of noir thrillers and i i've also talked to writers who try not to who may be writing um, a bit of noir, but they don't want their novels to be described as noir because noir <laughs> has a, you know, is not all that popular, I suppose. 
And um, I mean, I, of course, love noir. And um, I, I wonder if you could say anything about that. I mean, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. what. I don't even know what the question is, but why do you think noir, maybe what the question is, why is noir kind of um, discouraged? Agents, editors don't really want to say a book is noir. Um, they want to know. talk about it as being a thriller or, or a suspense novel or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Do you, I, I, yeah, it's a good question because I, I, I think maybe noir, noir maybe feels like a dated term, like it's from the 30s and 40s when you had a lot of the mm -hmm. sort of the pulp fiction going. And although you had two great writers, you know, Chandler and Hammett, right, turning up great stuff, and 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 Fanta here, um, but but um, but yeah, I think it maybe maybe it's considered a throwback to Bogart movies, which I don't know what's wrong with Bogart movies. I mean, they were some <laughs> of the best films coming out of Hollywood then. So I, I, I tend to think, I mean, I, I like noir and I don't mind my books being called that because I think, you, it, and maybe it's how we define noir, but noir is darkness and light. It's in all of us. Um, it's, it's, it's how we, how we see the world and how we deal with the bruises and, and scars that the world give us both internally and, and in the world around us. And it's how to, and it's how navigating that and it's understanding that and the sensitivity, once you understand it in yourself, is, yourself is to look at how it affects others. And I think for a cop and a detective, that level of darkness and light in you where you're always playing with the prism of it as it reflects back on you and how you look at the at the world and and maybe too where it comes just down to when i was a kid uh the formative the formative movies for me were noir movies and they were in black and white and i thought even even today and, and i'm a real i'm a real film buff I, I love a film in black and white because i think it the black and white gives you a starkness that the reader or the viewer can fill in and that and if you can bring um, uh, Amos Oz, the famous um, uh, is Israeli writer who died not long ago, I had a long conversation with him once just about writing. And he said, you know, you have to depend on the reader bringing their own inhibitions and who they are and their joys and desires to your page. He said, you, you have to let the reader do some of the work because they're the one, they're the one absorbing you. And he said, Other, if you don't do that, then all you are doing is putting black ants on a page. <laughs> and he meant black ants being words on the page. And so I thought, yes, why, why not? The reader, the reader needs to be invested in this. So let me, you know, let's create things that the reader can also internalize. And I think Noir does that. Hmm. I love that. I love, uh, I love all that that you've just said about Noir. I pretty much feel the same way, but um, I, I you know, I'm always curious when writers go, well, you know, I don't really want to say that's what I'm doing. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think you should just say it and do it and make your own, you know, whatever, however anybody comes to any of my books, it's what I didn't, you know, I don't want it. I, I'm, I'm fine with the classification of noir or whatever, but I want it, you know, the book has to ultimately stand on its own. And the only definition for your novel has to be, um, has to be with what it does to the reader. Yeah. Well, we're at the end of our time. I wonder if you have any any advice for the the writers listening, for the novelists um, who are listening to us. 
I, I think I think uh, my 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 advice, at least for me, what what keeps me going every day is the the discipline of writing, and number two, never to be scared. What you or don't inhibit yourself when you're first going through and, and writing. Just just write it because eventually you're going to to boil that down to something that uh, that is very meaningful and and the totality of of doing it all the time and, and working all the time and getting up and doing it just makes you better and better and better. It makes you a better editor. It makes you a better writer. It even makes you better at understanding character and yourself. So I think if you give yourself that freedom to experiment and, and to do it, you'll eventually find the, through the editing process where your story is. Mm, that's great. Great advice. Jeff, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. I've, I've uh, really enjoyed this. Uh, me too. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that was Jeffrey Fleischman. His most current novel is Goodnight Forever. And that's all we have for you today. If you uh, have taken anything from this, this talk, um, Please visit our Patreon page and look writers on writing and, uh, you know, a few bucks go a long way with the show and with uh, what Marie and I are trying to do with it. So uh, you can also reach me through visiting penonfire.com. And um, until next time, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs>